We have a big update for the City of Arches this week. We're going to look at Battlewalker from the Abyss by David Hartledge. I'm going to talk a bit about the idea of starting with the story and what that actually means. And we're going to cover the first batch of June Patreon questions from the Sly Flourish Patreon. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, and I am here to talk to you today about all things D&D on this D&D talk show. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you enjoy this show and you like what you're seeing and you want access to all kinds of exclusive material like the City of Arches and a lot more, you can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish, and you can find the link to that in the show notes below. So let's talk about the City of Arches. City of Arches is a product... Uh, I'm at the wrong spot. The City of Arches is a small city source book that currently is available to patrons of Sly Flourish. And it is right now a 27-page document. It is growing every month. It's growing by five pages, growing by five pages this month alone. It is a city built for adventure, a, a almost limitless city of adventure. It has at least three different ways you can kind of expand it in all sorts of areas. One is it is very deep. There are many ancient chambers and ancient things below the city. There's also the catacombs above the city, huge, vast caverns and catacombs and tunnels and passageways and stuff in the mountains above the city. But most of all, it has these things known as the archways, these very ancient, unstable portals that can connect to other worlds. On occasion, creatures come through the portals, often nice. They are often their memories are are scrambled when they come through. So you might find a horned devil who is actually working at the local baker's shop because it turns out that rather than flaying people with his spike chain he prefers to bake fine breads so you see a lot of that kind of stuff it is it is meant to be a city built for adventurers of all different kinds all different races can it makes sense that they're all here and there's lots and lots and lots of places to go so every month i add a, a few pages to the city of arches i expand it in little ways and over the past few months it has expanded quite a bit in a lot of areas it has maps by chloe Boland. And, you know, two different kinds of maps, an overview map and a side view map, which I'll which I'll show. And it talks about everything. It talks about the politics. It talks about how it works. It talks about the keys to the arches. It has notable NPCs. It has lots of locations and every location, almost every place in the book has a hook that you can use to generate a small adventure. So lots and lots and lots of adventure hooks all over the place. This is one of Chloe's maps. This is a side view map. Of it that kind of shows how deep this place can go how vast it can go so just the surface level of the city is only one part of it but there's all these chambers below and so i've got little descriptions of all of these places so lots of locations as i as i mentioned here's the over here's the, the overview map of the place so very you know fun comfortable place to, to live in and be in but lots of adventure lots of adventure taking place below notable factions different groups that are operating in and around random events that, that can occur here. I have this section that I added last month called the world worlds beyond the arches. These are the worlds that might exist beyond those archways. There's 10 of them, descriptions about what they're like, what's going on there. So if you want to throw some lore when the characters are exploring the city themselves or actually have them see or have a dream sequence or actually travel to one of these worlds, you can, you can do so. It sort of expands it 
in many areas. I have a one-page player's guide you can print out and give to your players if you plan on run, running an adventure in the City of Arches. That includes factions and patrons and things like that, the six truths. I have a quick adventure generator built on the tables from the Lazy DM's Companion that help you build adventures here. If you want to just kind of randomly generate a small adventure, you can do so with the, with the uh, random adventure generator, fill in all kinds of things. I have an introductory adventure, a first-level adventure called the Obsidian Skull. Very small, straightforward, meant to be played in a couple of hours adventure where you learn a little bit. Just go fight some cultists, learn about the city. And now we get into some of the things that are brand new. So the concepts of a hex flower comes from uh, Goblin, Goblin's Henchmen and uses their hex flower cookbook. The idea behind it is, and I talked about this on a previous show, so you will find a link to exactly how a hex flower works before, but essentially it's random. It's a, a random table that remain, that remembers its state. Essentially, when you have a random thing, you move into a spot, and then your next random roll is from that spot. So that way you have common things that might be below and rare things are above, and you can kind of move around. So we use this in the City of Arches by just, it's a, just a toy, really. And the, the toy is really like, how are the different areas of the City of Arches connected? And what passages might the characters find as they're exploring? So I have this scenario that you're hanging out in the public baths and there's a big whooshing sound and you essentially get flushed down through the cisterns of the uh, baths and end up in different places. And you can kind of roll 2d6 to determine where you might end up as you are flow through here or as you explore the area. It's a one-page guide, kind of neat, sort of a fun, a fun thing. But then here's the real the real big meat that got added this month, and that is a, cam a full campaign arc. The idea here is if you want to run a longer campaign, in this case, a first to 12th level campaign in the City of Arches, what is an arc that you could follow for the campaign? And so this whole summary is about an, a particular powerful item known as the Key of Worlds. This is a key that supposedly can open up any of the gates in the City of Arches and connect them to any of the worlds that they connect to. Very, very powerful item. Very dangerous item. The wrong person having access to this could take over the world. The right person could, could have something else. And the idea is there's this group that used to control this key. They didn't, they weren't sure they wanted to destroy it as powerful as it was. So they sealed it up beneath the City of Arches. Lore is just beginning to come to light about where this thing might be. And the characters are sent by a mage, Danvin of Duskwater, to say, go find this key. Learn where it is. We want to get access to it. He wants to learn about it because he's a historian from, from the, the Tower of the Arcane called Cartan. But it does, he doesn't know it, but his apprentice, who's probably not on screen, his apprentice is actually also trying to get a hold of the key and is sending rival adventuring parties to go get them. So, and then this mercenary group called Lisbeth and Rose, the Grey, the Grey Dawn sisters are the mercenary group that is going down there to try to get a hold of these keys as well. So this is a very location-based campaign arc. You travel down into all the various locations. You find out where, you know, you, you find out what it takes to unlock the vault that holds the key. That requires lighting two fires in two different spots, I think, or three fires in three different spots, but the rival company might light one of them. So you travel to all these different things. You, you, you light these fires. You have to have a special item in order to light the fires you light the fires that opens up the vault door you go to the vault you open up the vault you go in and you get the key and so it's you know first the 13th level adventure that can take them through and each section of the adventure is sort of broken up into major sections so we have like this introductory adventure called the scroll of legend where you just find out about what's been going on light in the darkness is about learning where uh, the vaults are learning where the vault is and learning where the fires are and what you need to do them. And then you have this section of the Blackfire Brazers going to each of the three brazers. The characters, the characters get to decide which brazer they're going to go after. 
And you can decide, do you want them to just do it on their own and there isn't a rival adventuring company or you want an rival adventuring company, you can add that in. You light the three brazers and then you end up at the Vault of Worlds itself and it gets very, very dangerous. You're fighting Balors and Hezrus, Glabrizos and Maroliths. Really powerful stuff. Eventually getting a hold of the, the, the key of the worlds and then deciding what to do with it. Do you destroy it? Do you throw it into the ether so that nobody will ever find it? Do you hang on to it? Do you use it? Those are all the kind of things. So meant to be kind of a fun thing, you know, meant to be a fun campaign arc that a DM can read. If you want to run, if you like the city of Arches, you're like, this is really cool and I want to run this. This gives you a good guide for how to fill out your adventure. You would still fill out the locations and add your monsters and do, do the adventures the way you want them. But it gives you a general outline about how how to do this so those four this four page adventure uh four page campaign arc is the main new edition and the main reward for the sly flourish patron this month so if you want to check that out it is available now if you are a patron of sly flourish you can go to the city of arches you can find it it's in the list of all of your rewards you click city of arches it'll pull up this pdf it has all of this stuff in it if you i'm also going to announce it to patrons in a couple of days i think either monday or tuesday a note is going to go out saying hey this is the new update to city of arches but it's already been updated so if you're watching this and you are a patron you can go get it right now so that is the city of arches and the new additions the hex flower and the key of worlds adventure arc Today, we're going to preview an adventure written by my friend, David Hartledge. David writes for the blog DM Day, and he uh, just talked about like the inspiration for the battle for, for Battle Walker from the Abyss. So he writes all kinds of wonderful, beautiful articles about D&D, dives really deep into this game that we all love. And it's one, it's one of my favorite blogs uh, that talk about D&D. Fantastic blog, and you should definitely subscribe to it. Uh, you should definitely uh, read it regularly. It's a wonderful, wonderful blog. And he, oh, look, when Mike Shea distills his lazy DM prep, look at him. I didn't even know he was, he was quoting me in this. That's very funny. So anyway, he sent me a, a review copy of this. So this, the, the copy that I received, I did not pay for myself. But I did read it, and I think it's really cool. So David put together uh, Battle Walker from the Abyss. It is a 26-page uh, adventure designed for levels 17 to 20. So this is a this is as high as you can get, right? And the idea of writing, there's an intimidating plan, right? Writing an adventure for 17th to 20th level characters is very hard to do. I have done it and it's very hard to do. But there's one key thing that David did that I think makes this work, which is play testing. He has play tested it. He talks about in his article here about what he had to go through to make this, to make this adventure. And, and it was hard, right? He said he ran it and it didn't work, right? And he had to go back and he had to fix a lot of it. So he talks a lot about his inspiration. This is an article he's got on his blog. This is the one I had read before, why I took the high dive into sh the shallow end of the D&D pool. So he wanted to make an adventure for high level characters. He knew how hard this is. He knew it's a tough thing to do. And he talked about how he ran it and the first couple of runs didn't work. He pitched this, I think, and the pitch didn't go through. But he went back. He persevered, right? He went back. He play tested it. He ran it. He he. he went through and, and figured out why it didn't work. And the result of this is the adventure, which you can buy right now, Battle Walker from the Abyss. You can pick it up for five bucks on DriveThruRPG. I'm sorry, $5 from the DMs Guild uh, right now. So cheap adventure considering the amount of playtesting and editing that went into this thing. Uh, nice clean layout, you know, pretty straightforward layout. Very, very readable. Clearly he's read through it a bunch of times. And the adventure is follows something that I believe strongly in which is making sure that the theme of the adventure fits the level of the characters 
they're not just going to a nearby castle and fighting an evil king, right? They are going through a pit into, into the abyss and going to a level of the abyss. They have multiple paths they can take. One interesting thing about this adventure is it's not a, not a super linear adventure. It, this adventure splits off into different areas that it goes to. So into different paths. And I think even the ending, if I, if I, from, from my, from my skim read, uh, I think the ending has multiple paths to the ending that they could take, multiple final battles that they can take. I think you can end up fighting both, but I think that you can choose which of the endings uh, you go for. But all through my reading of the adventure, it definitely read like it has a really firm grasp on the kinds of adventures that high-level characters are going to run. It has maps. I think he's got, let's see, yeah, some color color maps of the areas. I think these are all available as battle maps. It's got nice artwork, fun artwork. Yeah, there's a there's a, a, a cool a cool map that he laid out. Really fun, cool adventure. And there's a fair bit of criticism in, in uh, so it's 26 pages, but includes like the stat the stat blocks for for all of these creatures. And again, he's gone through multiple rounds of playtesting. I think if you read the article, it talks about how he had to simplify some things down because they just too hard to, you know, too hard to operate. And it's just hard. And I'll, I'll be straightforward. I think even when you playtest this thing, different groups of high level players to high level characters operate significantly differently from one another depending on what kind of characters they are depending on the experience of the players all kinds of things so i have no doubt and i think he even said that there are options in here for increasing and decreasing damage or dealing with yeah so he has these scaling things right strong scaling while restrained by webbing the creature takes 18 force damage at the start of each of its turns right so he has kind of different ways to scale the adventure up because you really need it this is something we also did in in fantastic layers that at high levels it's so swingy that the dm really needs to have big dials they can turn to make sure that the threat of a situation meets the threat that you would expect it to have in the world david learned the same thing and put it into this adventure so there's been a fair number fair amount of criticism fair amount i don't know some people have criticized 5e in particular DD, and because they don't have enough high level stuff they're like every campaign adventure none of them reach 20th level except for i think dungeon of the mad mage i think is the only one that goes to 20th level of all of the published hardcover adventures right and they're like you know there needs to be more high level content so if you believe that here's an answer right here is high level content here is a 17 to 20th level adventure that you can run so very cool yeah one of the first modules i ever bought was queen of the demon web pits says info bro and yeah it, it reminded me of that it reminded me of the big big walking spider ships i'm sure Spider Battle Walker, I'm sure was influenced by the idea of Queen of the Demon Web Pits, which is the same thing. When I ran a high level fourth edition game, I had Loth's um, big spider ship in it. It was really cool. So that is Battle Walker from the Abyss by David Hartledge. You can pick that up on the DMs Guild. There will be links to that in the show notes below so that you can, you can pick it up, check it out in the show notes below. Five bucks. Very cool. If you're interested in high level adventure, I definitely recommend checking it out. So that is Battle Walker from the Abyss. So I wanted to take some time today to talk about something I've been thinking a lot about. A lot of times when I hear a situation or I hear sometimes people struggling with a situation, when I hear people that are, that are asking how things work, my immediate answer is, I don't know, how does it work in the story, right? That when you want to know like, well, how do I design a good trap? You say, well, how would that trap work in the world? If you say, I want to know what kind of encounters I should run in this goblin cave, you say, well, what kind of things are going on in the goblin cave, right? What, what's happening there? How many goblins does it make sense for? I talk about this a lot in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. There's a lot where we talk about situations and things like that. 
But I, I think it's worth diving into because I, I get the feeling that it's almost a platitude at this point. That when you say start with a story or you say go with the fiction, that nobody, it's hard to understand exactly what that means. And there's so many different ways to sort of approach a D&D game that if you are just saying something like start with the story, like what does the story tell you? And I remember because in the fourth edition days, I had an, an opportunity to talk to a D&D developer about, it was Chris Sims, right? And I was talking to Chris Sims about encounter building. And I asked him, like, what do people need to know about encounter building? And he said, the, the important thing to remember about encounter building is that it starts with the story first. What does the story, how does the story work before you figure out what the encounter does and making sure you have the right controllers and the right lurkers and the right strikers and the right, you know, uh, all the right challenge related. You want to say, like, what is the, what is the adventure of? And I didn't understand it at the time. I didn't really understand what he was talking about. I was like, that's not how D&D works, right? D&D, we build encounters. We know the characters are a certain level. We know what kind of encounters they should face for that level. We know that we need to have a mix of different kinds of creatures so that you don't have everybody just, you know, one type of creature. We know you need an environmental effect. And I started with design for a while, for a long time, for almost all of fourth edition. I don't think it was really until I started playing other games outside of D&D even that I understood like, oh, how does that work? Of course you start with the fiction. The fiction, the mechanics represent the fiction. And I've heard D&D designers say this over the years. I've certainly said it over the years, but it's a hard concept to get your mind around. And I think the first thing that we have to kind of recognize with this is, is the balance of realism and fun. This is something I've talked about, too, in, in various areas. There's sort of two things that guide the design of something when you're thinking about it from the story. And one is, what would it actually be like in that world, right? What would it actually, how would it operate in that world? What kind of monsters make sense for that situation? What, you know, given the situation, like, how would the villains act? What would they do? How would they protect themselves? All that sort of thing. And you generally want to focus on trying to make the world feel as real as possible, making it feel like a living place. Events occur when the characters are there or not. That, you know, people wander in and out, right? And so you start with that. And this is where I think, like, you go with realism as much as you can. This is my thought, right? And I'm sure there's different approaches. So you, you, you start with trying to build as realistic a world as you can. But then there's this other angle that you want to consider, which is, is that fun? The, the stuff that we're doing that's realistic, is that fun as well? Is that bringing joy to the game? Is it making it interesting? Is it making it fun? Or has realism become, from a gameplay perspective, a bit of a slog, right? Or, or just not fun, right? And that's when you say, okay, now we're going to bend realism a little bit. Maybe we change realism. Maybe we change the situation to try to lean in towards fun. So these aren't equal dials. It's not, you know, you don't have two things and you make them both true. You really start with realism, I think, first, right? You try to build it as realistic as possible first. And then once you've got it, you look at it and say, is that, is that fun? And if it is, great. And hopefully it is, right? But sometimes it might not be. Now, so what's an example of this? An example would be the Sahuagin lair in... Uh, Ghost of Saltmarsh. So Ghost of Saltmarsh, the final enemy, you go into this old temple that used to be lizard folk. I think it used to be lizard folk and now it's Sahuagin, right? The Sahuagin sunk it. And if you read the adventure, the adventure has like piles of Sahuagin in lots of different spots. You go into a chamber, there's seven Sahuagin. You go in another chamber, there's Sahuagin brutes and other Sahuagin. And one thing is you say is, okay, like you start with, okay, well, there are a lot of Sahuagin flying around in this temple, floating around in this temple, swimming around in this temple, right? There's a lot of Sahuagin there. But 
the, the, and the realism is they're moving from chamber to chamber. They have guards to make sure that nobody's invading, but beyond the front doors are probably not worried too much. Right. And the fun aspect comes with like, if the characters go into a chamber and there's seven Sahuagin there and they get a big fight with a bunch of Sahuagin and it goes on for a while, you know, I mean, a while being 18 to 24 seconds, right. Which is like how long combat takes. And they, they have that battle. Then they go, they swim down another chamber. It's possible they could go to that other chamber and face another seven Sahuagin, right? And from a situation standpoint, that situation might be, you know, equally likely to any other. But it's also potentially likely that there's only two Sahuagin, right? That there's not a lot of Sahuagin there. And that's when you say, you know what? It might be more fun if there's only two because they just fought seven Sahuagin. It'd be a slog if they fight another seven Sahuagin. And this is when you get into that idea of attrition, right? Combat attrition. I, I still read about this and I still read players and, and, and people talking about the idea of the importance of attrition, the importance of like when a character goes into a dungeon, it's up to you to make sure they spend their resources crawling through that dungeon and not just having the opportunity to rest all the time or, or imbalances the game. Wizards have too much of a priority because they use long rest a lot. If you give them a lot of long rest, wizards are going to be more powerful than everything else. I'm not a believer in that philosophy, right? I think the situation should determine where they can rest. I think the situation should determine lots of things. Again, there's that dial on fun though. Start with the situation, determine these things. So my point is that instead of worrying about like, oh, I can, I can make... I can take away a lot of their resources. I'll just give them three separate fights against piles of Sahuagin, one right after the other. Is that fun? I argue it might be more fun if they fight a big pile of Sahuagin and then they go to the next chamber and then there's two Sahuagin having tea. I don't know how you have tea underwater, but right, huh, right? And now you have this opportunity for role play. You have an opportunity for intimidation, capturing, other questions that come up. Do we try to swim around them and avoid them, right? So you build a different situation that's approached differently from the previous one because that's what's fun. But the realism is still there. It still makes sense that there'd be Sahuagin there, but it's kind of equally likely that there'd be two as opposed to seven. Why would there be seven in every chamber, right? So that's where you want to look at the situation and start with what makes sense for the situation. What, you know, what kinds of creatures would they have here? And then what's fun, right? What, what also makes that fun? And so that's, that's that whole, that, that to me is the balance of realism and fun. You start with realistic, you know, within reason, right? What is, yeah, they have bubble tea made with real bubbles. Exactly. I, I like to think that you try to make the situation as realistic as possible for what you think would happen in the world. Of course, with all of the fiction of the world applied, right? Magic exists and things like that. And then fun. An example of like realism where it might not be as fun is I remember I had some characters that were going through the Tomb of the Nine Gods, right? A dungeon built by a Sararak. And every time they saw a lever, they're like, I'm going to use Mage Hand on the lever. And I'm like, the counterweights on that lever make it 20 pounds to pull. It, there are tight levers. You can't pull it with Mage Hand. And they're like, why is it that every stupid lever in this place is so heavy you can't use Mage Hand? I'm like, well, guess who made it? A Sararak. You think a Sararak doesn't know about Mage Hand? You think when he's building a trap or a death trap dungeon specifically to screw with people, like that's why it's designed, that he's not going to do that? Or alternatively, you can pull the lever and it kills you over on the other side of the room, right? Like he knows a Sararak is a smart dude, right? He knows about Mage Hand. So he's not going to put things in place that Mage Hand can be that can be affected by a single cantrip because he's an archmage. He's, a, he's, he's a, one of the most powerful liches, right? So, so that's when we think like realism. And then and you describe that and the players are like, they'll be grudging like, right? But that's, 
realistic. Is that fun? I don't know. It actually might be more fun if Acerax screwed with people who used Mage Hand, or some of them did work with Mage Hand, but not in the way you expect, right? Things like that. So that's that idea of like of like realism and fun. So then like when where does this this whole idea of starting with the story, going with the fiction, where does it come up? Where do you where does it help? Where do people not I, you know, in my experience, reading stuff, you know, reading people's experiences, talking to people about it, where does that not apply? I think a big one is in encounter building, right? I think a lot of times in encounter building, people start by thinking about what they need to challenge the characters before they think necessarily about uh, what monsters are there. If you go to like Kobold Fight Club, like let's let's do it right now. I can't remember the URL ever since they changed it, right? Here we go. And we say we're going to have five eighth level characters right and we say hey let's make a hard group and we say random and we refresh it and it's like we have a kraken priest and five bards right now obviously this is like the extreme end of a non-situational base thing but like what possible sense does it make for five bards to be hanging around a kraken priest given that we don't have anything about our situation we don't know anything about it so this is kind of interesting boss with minions right young white dragon and seven gray oozes let's any environment we will say we'll go with aquatic all right and now let's try it so this one's a little bit better, right? A Qtoa Archpriest and nine giant seahorses. Okay, you know, at least by environment we got it. A water elemental Myrmidon and five giant octopuses. Octopi? Five giant octopi. I guess that would work. Five giant octopi seems a, a bit extreme. Uh, we picked boss with minions. Let's say duo monsters. Let's find out. A giant shark and a Kuitoa Arch Archpriest. That's not so terrible, right? Uh, a giant crocodile, water myrmidon, and a Kuto archpriest, right? Look, and I hit reload and it keeps doing the same ones because there's not that many. There's not that many that fit that challenge rating. What if I do a deadly fight? A myrmidon and a hydra. My point with this is that sometimes we start with what I think I need the encounter to do from a gameplay perspective before we're thinking about what makes sense for the story. And there's a reason why in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Masters and the eight steps and stuff like that, I don't have a section where you build encounters. I have a section where you select monsters, right? And you pick all the different kinds of monsters that might make sense. And my thought is the situation is evolving during the game. Then you choose which monsters make sense. The one difference with this would be boss fights. With boss fights, I think it's worth spending some time to actually build a boss fight. I talk about this in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master as well. But generally speaking, per encounter, I think it's more fun to say like, well, what is the previous encounter like? What was the next encounter like? What makes sense for the situation? And then we choose our monsters. But the monsters that you pick for that list, that's where you say what monsters make sense for this place. And it could be pretty random. It could be they're in a dungeon, an old dungeon. My point in this is that when we're building encounters, I think DMs, I think a lot of DMs start with designing the encounter as a mechanics process and then wrap the story around it afterwards. They might, they might build an encounter. They might look at like what monsters make sense. They might look what monsters make sense from a challenge rating perspective. Maybe they consider environment. 
And then they build their encounter around that. And then what you end up with is a game where like each block of encounters is sort of its own thing. I, I like to think of this like uh, Gears of War. If you've ever played the video game Gears of War, you will walk into an area and you'll immediately tell, oh, I'm going to have a big fight here. And it's because I see the environment is set up a certain way. I see that there's places for me to do my slam up against the wall thing. I can tell. You can just walk in and immediately tell there's going to be a fight here because of the way the environment is set up, right? And that's because the game is essentially built up from these like battle environments, right? And I played this way for a long time with fourth edition. And I'm not saying it's wrong, right? Like if, you know, again, right? The, the, the core rule, if you and your group are having a good time, go with the gods, right? Like, you know, it's who, who's, who's for me. I'm not saying one is right and one is wrong. I'm offering an approach, right? And the approach that I take is you build a more dynamic, more, you know, a changing scenario, and a scenario that can change a both because the story is evolving, things are happening in the game that are changing, but also you can change it to kind of fit the pace and the feeling of the game. If you know you don't have a lot of time left, you can run something small or you can you can step outside of combat completely. But a lot of that all comes from what makes sense from the story? What can evolve inside the story? How does the story change? What monsters make sense from here? How are they operating? Why do they operate here? And then how does that work? And that's you know, again, it's, it's, it can be tricky. And like, I was talking with some friends of mine and we're saying like, sometimes you just have a cool miniature, right? And like, you're, you're like, Hey, look, like I got my new, I got my new basilisk, my new basilisk miniature from Dwarven Forge, right? It's got glowing eyes. Oh, look how many, um, uh, miniatures you see that have glowing, look at the pulsing, growing green eyes, right? So I'm like, I want to make an adventure that has this guy. And you're like, okay, that's cool. What's this guy's story? And what's the story that surrounds him? And what's the story of the other things that might appear there? And how does it affect everything else? Because you could just say, I've got a cool basilisk. We're going to have a basilisk lair. Well, now you've created the story around the mini. That's cool, right? And you can still decide what's the lair like and why do they go there and what do they want to have? That's where you can, you can come at it from different angles. Like I remember Dave Chalker said, like, I build adventures sometimes just because I have a cool map. And you're like, that's great. Great. Like we can be inspired. Our adventures can be inspired from anything. It can be inspired from a miniature. It can be inspired from a map, a piece of artwork, a, a monster where we just like the mechanics. Right. And we like, I want to try that monster with those mechanics. That's that inspires the story that we can build. Right. That's the way the story comes about can come from any place. But once we start to think about that story, then we say, OK, well, now, how does that operate in the world? What is that like? What kind of creatures would be around a basilisk? What? You know, does he have a secret cult of worshipers that worship the basilisk who all blind themselves, right? They all, they all wear like things over their heads, right? I, you know, it could be cool. The different things can kind of inspire our story. That's when we want to think about like what makes sense for the story. So it's not necessarily like only one angle. Like you're only starting with the story. You're never allowed to look at your cool basilisk mini and say, I'm using that. No, the story can be inspired from anything, right? You can inspire, get inspired from anything, but eventually it still turns around into this story. And it's the story that builds that. And that's one of the things that, that I think makes the story so cool is this idea that it drives towards building a situation, right? That the most fun adventures that I've run, the ones that I've enjoyed the most, both playing in and running are the ones that are situation-based adventures. You have a location, you have a goal, the characters have a goal for why they're going to this location. Get the chalice, right? Go pick up the chalice, right? That this magical chalice that once belonged to the town. I mean, we're gonna, it was still right from like Indiana Jones and then the Temple of Doom. There's an old ancient evil temple. There is a chalice that some cultists stole from the town and brought to the evil temple, which they're using to resurrect a demon. So now you got a situation. 
And the characters have been hired by the town to go to the temple to recover the chalice and bring it back to town so that the town can be healthy again. That's the goal, right? Go get the chalice. And that's the, the background story. We have a location. We have this old ancient evil temple, right? Maybe it's been around for a thousand years. It's got all kinds of stuff. You want to go rich? You throw some history. Wow. Who built it? What did they build it for? Was it actually a prison where it was trapping the demon, but the cult is actually using it to release the demon that was trapped there? Maybe, right? So you can build your history around it. And then you say, okay, what occupants are there? And I, I always like to think of two different kinds of occupants. I like to think of like your main group, like the evil cult, and they've hired some mercenaries that are there too. So they've got physical, you know, physical brutes that are, that are protecting them. And they've got like their evil priests who are doing their crazy ritual, right? And those are like the intelligence side. Then I like to have a non-intelligent side. There are secret caverns that haven't been opened in the thousands of years. And there's all kinds of crazy monsters in there that nobody has seen before. And there's different entrances that you can take to get in. Do you want to go in through the old, through the old passageways that haven't been uncovered in a long time that only the old man at the village knows about? Or are you going to go kind of through the main entrance? And then now you've got a situation. You've got an evil cult. You've got uh, non-intelligent, you know, bestial kind of monsters. You've got a place. You've got a goal. And you put it in front of the players and you say, here's the situation, right? Here's the situation. Here's the goal. What do you want to do? And they could say, we're going to pretend to be mercenaries. We're going to be augmented mercenaries. We're going to break in. We're going to say, hey, we're from Gray Company and we're here to, we were just hired by those nutty priests that are worshiping the demon to come and help them. And the guys are like, oh, okay, go on, yeah, welcome. Go to the buffet. The buffet's, the buffet's pretty good today, right? And then they, they break in, they get, you know, they get on their way in and they have to figure it out. It, it, it's almost like running everything like a heist. They can go any path. And then the other group says, we're never going to make it trying to go in through the front door to pretend to be mercenaries. Let's go through that old river tunnel that the old man told us about. And we know that there's stuff back there. And then you go and there's giant spiders and there's crazy basilisks, right? With glowing eyes that turn you to stone. There's monsters you have to fight, but then you get in through an angle that no one thought of and you can get right to the throne room because there's like a waterfall in the throne room and you can come down the waterfall and you can fight the cultists and you grab the chalice and get the hell out. Situations, right? The story is building that situations. I didn't talk about number of monsters. I didn't talk about encounters. I didn't talk about, you know, all the mechanic-y kind of parts of that difficulty checks and, and all that. I'm thinking big picture, right? But I know I can go grab a Dyson map. I can list some monsters down that I can pull right out of the monster manual. I got pretty much everything I need to make an adventure. I just made that up while we're just here talking. When I talk about, you know, building from the story or building from the fiction, it, it part of that is like, what is the situation that's going on here? How does it evolve? How will it evolve? What happens when the characters, if the characters are making their way in through the bestial side, but it's taken them a long time, what's changing inside the dungeon itself? What's changing with the, with the ritual that they're doing, right? Again, always having that other dial on in the back of your mind, what's fun? right? What's fun? What's cool? Determining rests, right? This is another area where a lot of people say like, how do you make sure that you are not giving too many rests, that characters aren't taking too many rests? I had somebody who posted an actually a really interesting Reddit article where somebody came up with a solution for this problem. And the solution was an interesting one, which is safe havens. And, and I'll, if I find, I'll have to find this article again. If I find it, it will be in the show notes below. I'll, I'll persevere to find the thing about safe havens. And the idea about safe havens is that you have only certain locations can you actually take a rest. I think of this like Final Fantasy, right? If you're playing in a Final Fantasy game, it's like you're going through a dungeon. You can't just rest in the middle of a dungeon. You can only rest where there's that little star, right? And when there's a little star or pool or whatever, you can go to the star in the pool and that's where you can get a rest. And that way, the, the designer 
knows how far the characters can get before they're going to be able to get a rest, right? And a part of the safe haven is you can't just rest in the wilderness, right? You, you, you can rest in town. You can only rest in a place where you can really rest, where you don't have to worry about facing off monsters that are out there, where you don't have to worry about setting up watches, where you don't have to worry about, you know, when there's no stress, right? You're fully protected. There's no stress. Then, then and only then can you take a rest where you get all of your, all of your, all of your abilities back, right? And short rests, I assume, are a little easier. And then one of the things I thought was interesting is Lehman's Tiny Hut doesn't count, right? And I kinda, I'm kind of good with this because Lehman's Tiny Hut is a little tricky. Lehman's Tiny Hut is a good place to be able to get a safe haven, and you can certainly take a short rest there. But it's too stressful not knowing what's happening on the outside or not, you know, or be, you're still not in, a, you're still not in a, uh, a safe place. And so you can't take a long rest in a, a Lehman Tiny Hut, which is a pretty big nerf of the Lehman Tiny Hut because that's what it's designed for. I get that it's not great. I'm not a fan, but that was what it was designed for, right? So InfoBro says there's an optional rule in the DMG like this. There's an optional rule in the DMG that you can, that long rests, that short rests are eight hours and long rests are a week. But I think it just changes the time. I don't think it changes the location. Now, obviously you're not gonna spend a week hanging out inside of a dungeon. But yeah, I did. There, there is that too. So first of all, my answer to a lot of this is when you think about like, how do I manage rests inside of my dungeon is to say, well, what makes sense for the dungeon, right? If there's a room that no one has been in for a thousand years and they can seal it up and make sure nobody remembers this room and there's no other things at play, does it make sense that they can't rest there? Not really, right? Does it make sense if, they, if they're really worn down and they really need to rest and they're in the four-way hallway right before the... Right before the uh, a boss, does it make sense that they could rest in the four-way hallway? Probably not. Not with the bosses, right? One door away and not with people wandering through the hall. So you can, a lot of times you can look at the situation and say how, how, you know, what kind of rest you can have. But one of the things that I like as a DM is I like to think of rest as an element of pacing. I like to know that I can change the dial on rests. I want to be able to give them rest when they deserve it or, or when it makes sense. Like I've had it where the characters burned everything out of hit dice, out of spells, out of their abilities, and they're just about to get to the boss. And I'm like, this is a big boss fight, right? And I get it that like, oh, that's ideal because, then, but do you really want them fighting a boss with nothing but cantrips, you know, and no healing spells and nothing else? Not really. Like you'd like them to have something. So I try to find a way for them to be able to take a rest, whether it's like a, you know, hey, there's that old goblet that's in this old room that you didn't find. If you drink from the goblet, it gives you the equivalent of a long rest, right? Or something, even at least the equivalent of short rest and recover some spell slots. I like to have a dial on the rests so that I can offer to them. But there are many times where I just don't care. And most of the time when I don't care, it means they're getting rests all the time. So what? Does it really matter that much? They're going through the wilderness. I don't have to challenge them when they're going through the wilderness. They can just find a situation because I don't care about pushing them to their limits, right? I care about having a fun, enjoyable, interesting story. And so that could mean that if you have a wilderness, sometimes their wilderness encounter isn't combat. The wilderness encounter is meeting somebody or seeing that some other big monster had come through here, learning something. To me, the real fun, this is something Numenera is teaching me a lot too. The fun of it is learning stuff, right? Learning about the situation, evolving the situation. Combat's awesome. I love combat. I love, I love running combat. I love being in combat when I'm playing. You know, I love all that stuff. But I don't have to worry about like, oh, is it too easy? If they face all this stuff and they have a full rest and they've got all their capabilities and they know it and they're like, oh, we're going to burn all our spell slots. Is that really a problem? I don't, I don't think so. I'm not too worried about it, right? I, I think where I worry about challenge is usually in, in making sure that the feeling of a boss fight 
feels hard, feels challenging, right? That they, you want that cinematic style of being on the, being on the ropes, but still managing to pull it off. And that's why I'm a big believer in the dials. Cause I want to, I want that pacing to feel like that. Right. And my thought is even if you have a full rest going into a boss fight, if I have multiple waves of creatures in a boss fight, you're still going to burn all your resources because you're still going to fight three encounters worth of monsters. Right. And because I like doing that for boss fights. So, I mean, that, that, that again, when I look at rests, I ask myself, what makes sense for the story? And sometimes the story is you're really not going to find any opportunity to take a long rest in this dungeon because the psychic, the psychic energy of this place is so disruptive. You don't think you're going to be able to find easily find a place to rest, but then there might be one room where that psychic energy isn't there. And that's the one room they can save. That's that idea of like putting the final fantasy star that says, Oh, here's okay. And you can move that room where you want it so that you can change up the pacing of the game. You can control it. Right. I, I don't, I don't expect that my opinion on this is the majority or that it's certainly the opinion of everybody. I have a feeling lots of people have different opinions on this. And if you've got some and they're working for you and that's, that's great. Right. And share your experiences, right? Share, share, Share how it works well for you. But I know that this is working for me too. And I've talked to other people and it's working for them. So I think that this is another approach where you might think about like, you know, like there's so many things to worry about. And I think worrying about rests, I don't think we have to worry about that idea. I keep hearing it come up about the number of ideal battles per, per day and everything like that. And if you're off that, you're doing, don't, it's not that big a deal. It's really, you know, my opinion, it's not that big a deal. Traveling through the wilderness, I talked about too, right? Go ahead and, you know, still you can share stories. What's the situation? What's going on? But don't, I don't, I don't, I don't worry about it. So then there's this idea of like aiming the lens. So when we're thinking about the story of our game, some of that story is where we aim our lens, right? Do, is it tight and focused? Is it wide? Is it how time? How do we treat time? Is time fast? Is time slow? And when I talked about like dungeon crawling, I think in, in previous previous episodes of this, I've talked about dungeon crawling. And there's that question of like, do you track turns in a dungeon? Do you worry about how long a torch can last? Do you worry about your rations and where they're going to run out? Some people run that way and that's very cool right and and if and it's working for you it's working for you that is an example of like where you're putting the lens right and sometimes you want the lens to be fast and furious and focused on the action and things are happening the situation is big and lots of things are going and sometimes it's more fun to focus down on the details and really get that right i play in a game every other week my friend chris runs a DD game and one of the things that was kind of fun for me is my character was kind of pretending to be a mentor to another character about what it's like to go traveling out in the wilderness. And he talked about things like, make sure to take your socks off every few hours and floss your toes with the socks so you don't get the weird fungal crud, right? And that's like, that's like a land, like that, that's a pretty tight lens, right? Like that's not big part of the story, right? The whole thing is like her, her mother disappeared and she's getting, there's a whole other evil queen who's trying to go after her because she's some, you know, she's got some power that she wants, right? And there's this much bigger thing at play. There's a huge war going on between the orcs and the humans and all this stuff. And still I'm like taking up time in the game talking about the toe flossing, right? And and it's fun for me. I don't know. I think it's fun for the other players. I don't know. It's kind of, she's she plays off of it. So that's kind of fun. One of the big fun things is I talked about like, you know, washing clothes and everything like that. And the importance of like, you know, that you got to worry about the fun. And then if it turned out she had prestidigitation and she was secretly like cleaning her clothes with prestidigitation all the time. I'm like, we've been traveling for seven months and you have prestidigitation digitation and you didn't tell me like that was fun right so that's where like you can focus the lens sometimes and the, you know you gotta think about where does that lens focus that that 
that is bringing the most joy. You could think of it like a director of a movie, right? Where, what angles do you want to take? What focus? How much time do you want to spend on this? When do you want to jump cut to the bigger action? Because that's really the cool part, right? Big thing on pacing. This is, I complain about Adventures League Adventures sometimes where I'll have DMs that run it and they spend a lot of time on the middle of the adventure and then they cut off the end of the adventure, right? Because it's like, oh, you only have four hours and you only have 15 minutes left, but you're facing the great big black dragon. I had this actually happen. You're going to face a big black black dragon. We're just going to say you beat it. And I'm like, you made us do this giant slog through this swampy part with skill checks and skill challenges and number of successes versus number of fails and exhaustion and all this other nonsense that was totally not fun, right? We spent 45 minutes on that. And then we get to the part where you get to fight a black dragon and we don't have enough time, right? That's the lens, right? You got to look at it and be, how much time do I have? And where do I want to be focused in that lens? And do I want to narrow it down? Do I want to expand it? The big part. What does that have to do with like, starting with the story is that that's kind of the story right that when the story the story is not happening when you sit down and you plan your game it's happening when you're running your game and you want to think about when you're running your story when you're thinking about the overall story of the game how tight do you want that lens how big do you want that lens how fast do you want time to be going how slow do you want timing to be going where do you want to put the detail right where do you want to put the detail where do you want to where do you want to you know hand wave stuff and it's all tied back to what makes what makes the game fun, what are we enjoying, right? And what makes the story interesting. To me, the details of things like flossing your toes with your socks every few hours made travel feel more real to my character. And it was kind of a fun interplay between my character and, and this and, and other Cecilina, the other character, right? It was a fun thing. So I enjoyed it. And I think everybody else kind of thought it was cute and funny, right? So that's tight lens, right? But it was kind of a fun thing. Where are the lens? And sometimes like that, in that case, the player will tell you. The player will show you what, what kind of resolution they want. If they go into town and they get real detailed, you might say, okay, they want the lens to be a little tighter. Now, of course, you have different players with different goals and different things that they want. And that's tricky to balance too. That's a whole other topic. But I think that that's that. So this is, you know, I've been kind of all over the place. I recognize that. But I, but I think like, you know, when I'm, when I'm talking about, when I say things like, start with the story, build from the story, build from the fiction. That's kind of what I'm talking about. I'm hoping I clarified that a little bit. I'm hoping that I added some practicality to that idea. But let me know, right? If you're reading this and we're talking about scenes and situation and story and stuff like that, and, and you're not getting it, let me know. You can tell me in the comment, you know, ask me, ask me in the comments. Uh, if you're a patron, ask me in the Q&A. That'd be awesome. And we can, you know, we can try to figure this out together. But that, you know, I, I want the idea of focusing on the story or story first stuff to not just be a platitude, to not be just something that we say, but nobody actually knows what it means. I want to, I'm, I'm trying to knock that down and break that down into here's specifically how that plays out. And here's the difference between that and other styles. Not because it's better. It's just a different approach, but it's an approach that I have enjoyed. It's a style where my style has changed significantly over the past 10 years. And, and one that I greatly enjoy. I love it. I love, it makes me so much happier as a DM to watch the situation evolve, to not know how things are going to go, to play off of what is happening and to always have the dials ready to be able to make the game fun. So I hope you, I hope you enjoyed that. Let's do some patron questions. Every month I post a thread on the Sly Flourish Patreon where patrons can ask questions. Uh, I answer all of them on Patreon. Some of them I highlight here on the show and other ones become articles or videos in, in, in later things. So let's Let's take a look. Brooks says, what are the best ways to hook players into adventures without making them making it feel forced or repetitive? I find myself defaulting to have them be attacked and I want to change it up. I'd also like to avoid overusing the random NPC ask for aid trope. 
Yeah, good question. So this is like, how do you draw, this is about hooks, right? How do you draw players into your adventures? And there's a few different ways. There are some where it's like models, right? Like what are the, what are the quest models that you can use? What are the different ways? The cold open is one of them where the characters are thrown right into the situation. I did this in Eberron. They're walking along and all of a sudden a train explodes, right? Or one of the rails explodes and they get involved because they're on this rail thing. You can have, there's lots of different cold opens that you can use. Here are some of the ones that I've used that were pretty interesting. One was grave robbers dig you out of a charnel pit. You've been there for a thousand years, but yet you are still appear to be immortal. Like you're, you're, you appear to be normal people. So they're digging up your grave to steal your stuff. You wake up. How did you die? Why are you there? What, you know, that's a pretty thematic one, right? It, I did that for a Shadowfell based game. So I wanted a dark, that would be like a really good domain of dread style game as you were dug up. You don't know why you were resurrected. You don't know how come you weren't dead. All of a sudden you're just wake up coughing and a bunch of grave robbers are there and they're going to try to kill you because they're like, Hey, we still want your stuff right? So that is, it, that, that's one angle. Uh, another one is starting off an arena, right? I had it where a character got hit in the face with an ax, got critted and was down to zero before they even did anything else. They start off in the arena. We rolled for initiative. Guy hit him in the face with an ax. Out of the abyss starts with you captured by drow, right? You are sitting inside of your prisoners inside of a drow camp. Spoiler, right? But it's a very, very scene. Those are like cold opens where you just throw them right in the middle of the situation, right? And some of those are better than others. Like, you know, you want to make sure your characters are on board, with this idea of how things are going to start and what kind of game is going to go. Uh, I don't think I, I did it a little bit with those. I hinted at it, right? But but I don't think I told them exactly how it was going to go. So those cold opens are one way to draw somebody in. The idea of like you are guards, you know, the, the Fandelver, right? The, the beginning of Fandelver, you're guards on a, on a cart. It's going across. You get attacked by goblins, right? And it turns out those goblins have kidnapped somebody else. That, you know, it's fine, right? Like one thing is we don't have to be too... I don't think we have to look at it and be like, I got to constantly shake the model, right? I don't think you have to. Like D&D is D&D. There's a reason why we like this game that's been around for 50 years. And it's because we like some of those tropes. We don't mind the models. Oh, you know, a guy comes to the inn and hires you to do a job. The, the quest board, right? The Dragon of Ice Bar Peak has a quest board. Nothing wrong with quest boards, right? That's a good way to do it. But some other ways, the group patron is one that I really like. The idea that all of the characters during character creation are tied to a particular patron and that patron has a job for them to do right? My Numenera game began with them falling in a sinkhole into an ancient ruin and then had to make their way out of the ruin and learning things about the ruin. That was mostly to learn the mechanics. It didn't really draw them in the game, but it was certainly an adventure. Uh, I think so the Lost Temple of Tomoshan, one of the D&D adventures has you start off having fallen into a pit and have to get make your way out of the dungeon. That's certainly a good way to go. So, but group patrons are like a gift that keeps on giving. You can, you can design it around uh, the characters. You know, you can have relationships between the characters and the patrons. So it's not random NPC asking you for aid. It's your uncle asking you for aid, right? You and your uncle asking you for aid. So having a group patron and then asking the players how their characters are tied to this patron or to each other is a, is a good, good way to go, right? And the patron is the one that's hiring. I think that's a really easy really good model that works a lot for 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 generating is who do they work for and doing that during your session zero right so during your session zero you can decide who the patron is and in, in my eberron game they had an uncle one of the characters was the nephew of a of a patron and the patron was the one who was like hey look our family needs to solve this problem right and you're my nephew and you need to do it you and your friends need to do it right that worked really well it was very very strong so, so those are a few ideas. Brooke, I hope that answers your question. Dom G says, I'm planning a sci-fi campaign that puts the PCs in the middle of some big and powerful star empires. 
I love big star empires. I have a good handle on the organizations, i.e. what's different, what different empires want and how they go about it, but I'm getting stuck thinking about the lower level NPCs that the parties will be interacting with. How do I keep the NPCs from just being generic stand-ins for their larger organizations? So I think the answer is Herald. I, I, like, I love Heralds, right? And the thing about Herald, like a Herald is a NPC that works for a faction, right? And sort of represents that faction. And if you're trying to make sure they're not generic, I mean, random random tables can help you. Random personality types, random races, random characteristics that they have. You can sort of make them uh, different ones. You can also say like, well, they're an NPC, but they're actually secretly working two organizations against each other. The NPC doesn't have to be directly from one of these empires. They could be working two empires across each other. But yeah, you're, you're on the right track. And the one thing that you're on the right track of is thinking about how you can put interface elements into your game that your players are going to directly interact with that are going to relate to these empires like npcs right so that that already is good but you can think about you know having like one notable npc and then build npcs like you would pick a cool character from fiction that you like give them a neat name switch genders if they if they're clearly like you know oh i like I, you know let's go al swearingen from deadwood right uh, al swearingen but a woman right very you know change change these things kind of change their appearances, change their, their, you know, pick their styles and mannerisms and decide how they operate in the world. So really the question is how do you make interesting NPCs instead of generic NPCs? And random tables are a way, picking character archetypes is my easiest way and, and building interesting NPCs and then having them be the heralds to the organizations. They're the ones that kind of speak for the organization or maybe multiple organizations, right? Or they're working directly against one of the organizations and have the characters learn about the organizations through those NPCs. But of course, you're, you're also talking about, you know, fronts, right? We've talked about fronts before, the idea of, of villains, big, big groups that are operating and they have a goal and they have steps and the steps that they take, those steps are the things that the characters are going to see. They're going to see that they are that that organization is moving somewhere and doing something and it's doing something because it's doing these things so dom i hope that helps uh, answer your question cloaker says uh, you and brandis recent m monsters of the multiverse observations about the future game becoming an ac arms race versus npc spellcasters feels incredibly valid i love the quick reskin tech tip to dc saves of eight plus the attack bonus this is the sort of forward thinking we're going to need in the months to come what are some other what are another couple of systemic current edition or 5.5 problems on the horizon that might be ripe for similar intuitive solutions so dms can mitigate uh, these potential future design pitfalls. So I'm not, I, I don't think it's a pitfall, right? I don't, when I look at the design of the monsters from Monsters of the Multiverse, I think they're better than the monsters that we've had previously. I look at the War Priest, right? I really like the War Priest. Let's pull up the War Priest. Right, the new War Priest is really solid, right? Hits hard, easy to run, not a huge stat block, and yet is really effective, right? Still has things that make it feel like a priest. So I don't think the design is worse. I think the things that, the, the little tips and tricks, I don't want to keep repeating the same stuff, but the little tips and tricks that help us run any monster are going to help us run these. Now, part of your question is, how are we going to mitigate it with 5.5 coming forward? I don't know what 5.5 is going to look like. I don't think anybody does. I don't even think the people working on it know exactly what it's going to look like, right? I, I would not be surprised if they're looking at the feedback of Monsters of the Multiverse to determine how they're going to do monsters in the new monster manual. Maybe. I don't know, right? I don't know what it's going to look like. So I don't have any answers about what that's going to be like. So what that means I can only look at what we have today and back and ask myself, what kinds of things do I need to do now to, 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 to look back. And I think another good heuristic tool. So we have these little tricks that we keep in our heads, right? And a little tool that I like to keep in my head is understanding how many hit points and how much damage any monster at any challenge rating 
generally should do. And I built this model looking at what Paul Hughes had done with Level Up Advanced 5e, but also on his blog, The Blog of Holding. He did a lot of the math to figure out like what generally do monsters do, right? And some of the, you know, a couple of the numbers that I like to keep in my head, all of these numbers I think are in the Lazy DMs companion too, but you can memorize them. And one is that the, the, the hit points of a monster is roughly 15 plus 15 times its CR, right? So, I th and I think that might even be a little high, but that way, if you have a CR 10, it's 165 hit points, right? If you have a CR five, five times 10 with 50, 25, 75, uh, 80, 90, 90 hit points for a CR five, right? So you can quickly say like, okay, the CR five that I'm looking at, are its hit points significantly lower or higher than I would expect given its CR? And that doesn't mean you have to change it. You might still go with the hit points that are listed in the monster manual, but it gives you a gauge of like, is this significantly less or, or higher or lower than the kind of hit points that I would expect. You can do the same thing with damage, right? When I look at a monster, I say, how much damage does it do? How much out, what's its damage output? And that's usually seven times level, seven times CR, right? So a CR 10 should be doing about 70 points of damage overall. Uh, a CR5 should be doing about 35. And this comes up because there are certain creatures. I was looking at... So in, in, in my experience, there are some creatures of lower challenge ratings in the newer stuff that hit way harder than that, right? Way harder. And then there are some creatures at higher CRs that do way less than that, right? And that's where having that number in mind can give you an idea of what might I have to do when I'm going to run this, this creature. And an example is I'm running a battle on Wednesday. So we're going to look at Tomophos. Nope, that's not right. That's Legacy. We're not looking at Legacy. We were like Monsters of the Multiverse. And we're going to look at the Wizards. Because I think it was the Wizards. Now, Wizards you would expect are a little glass cannony, right? And I think there was like a CR6. Is it this guy, the Conjurer? No, it's one of the other ones. The Enchanter, right? And I'm like, okay, the Enchanter is a CR5, right? And I'm like, okay, that's challenge rating appropriate, right? Hit points are a little low because it's 50, right? And I said 75. So clearly its hit points are low. Armor class is also low with a 12. And it does not have shield or anything like that. So it has no way to knock that. It has a 15 AC, but it doesn't have anything that, that goes higher than that, right? So its hit points are definitely low. But then damage output-wise, Enchanter makes three arcane blast attacks, right? Plus six to hit, five, 19 psychic damage. That's nearly, what is that? 57 points of damage at CR5, right? So to me, five times seven is what? 35? Do I have that right? Yeah, five times seven is 35, right? So this guy's doing almost twice as much damage as I would expect it to do. So if I'm running this guy and I say, oh, he makes three arcane blasts and he's going to go blast that guy. You take 58 points and like 58 points, I have 40 hit points, right? Like, yep, you're down. So that's when you, you want to kind of know, is this guy actually like, you know, he's going to have fewer hit points than, than the CR, but he's got way more damage than the CR. How is that going to operate when I run it at the table? It's a little unfortunate that a, a creature like this is so swingy that you need to ponder that idea, that you need to not just look at its challenge rating, but also look at its damage output. I've already had to do that high challenge monsters a lot. But now at lower challenge monsters, I have to be like, is this really high? Because like, I think even the, the original monster manual mage hit pretty hard. The straight monster manual mage is CR6. And it's pretty tough because it hits Kona Cold, which I think is a is 36 points of damage against multiple targets. So I'll tell you what that enchanter wizard is cool. And that's if he blasts three different people, right? And that's when you go, ah, okay. If I wanted to hit correctly, 
you know, I am not going to bone one character, you know, it would be mixing up the attacks. It would be throwing three different ones at three different targets and hitting each of them for, you know, 19 points of damage. That's pretty severe because, you know, I think the CR is about the same, right? Low hit points, but bam, Cone of Cold is brutal. Like, you know, in greater invisibility, Cone of Cold, right? That's a hell of a combo for the regular mage to be able to do. And that Cone of Cold is probably going to hit multiple characters, but it's going to hit for 36 points. It's what makes mages really dangerous. They can hit a lot of people for a lot of damage, but they generally don't knock down lots of people because they're spreading that damage across multiple targets. So little tricks like that. I think having those numbers in your head, what is what is the general challenge rating and damage output in monsters? The other the other one that I like to keep in mind is roughly how many hit points can I expect a character to have? It swings wildly, so I know that my math is not correct, so you don't have to correct me on my math. But generally, what I, I, I think it's seven, seven times level plus three is roughly the average. Now, things like toughness change it, so higher levels, it probably goes up. But seven times level plus three. So if you have five characters and their fifth level, you can generally expect that the rough amount of hit points that the character has is, what is that, 43 hit points? No, 30, 38 hit points, right? 38 hit points at level five. I think that's about right. Seven times, seven times five. Math is hard. I think it's 35, right? Yeah, 35. So seven times five plus three uh, is 38 hit points. So you keep that number in your head, like level times seven, right? is about the amount of hit points you can expect a character to have. Some will be lower, some will be higher. Your crazy barbarian with the con, you know, with an 18 con is like more than twice as many because of resistance and stuff like that. But generally speaking, you can you can play that out. So, little numbers like that. If you want to if you want like a listing of these numbers, the Lazy DM's companion has that. I think in the beginning of the book has descriptions of these numbers that you can keep in your head that help you understand the mechanics behind the game. So you can you can build things quickly on the fly, but you can also benchmark the things that you've got. Cloaker, I hope that answers your question. I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me today. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you for letting me uh, rant about story, the story focus of D&D. I hope that was helpful or interesting or at least gave a different perspective on things. If you enjoyed this show and you want to help me out, uh, you can do so in four ways. You can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter and get weekly articles sent directly to your inbox. You can join me on Patreon and get access to things like the City of Arches. You can subscribe to my videos here on YouTube so you'll get uh, you'll get notifications when new videos come out. Uh, or you can pick up any of my books which are filled with all the stuff that you've seen uh, from today. So thank you all very much for hanging out with me today. Have a great day and get out there and play some D&D. &D.